open them to Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at an interesting story. In fact, I'm going to call this a really unusual story. You're going to see how that word unusual pops up in here. But in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, it shows how faith works by giving us a glimpse into an unusual faith that's found in an unusual man who displayed his faith in a very unusual way. Let me read this to you. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 1. And by the way, I'll be reading from the ESV because it's the Bible I use when I teach down in prison. Okay? When he had completed all this, his disciples in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to, to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also for I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my slave do that. And he does this. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him. I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Pretty cool story, huh? Here is a man in our story today that suspended disbelief so that he could believe and thereby receive a fantastic miracle from the Lord. Now, there are three people in this story. There's Jesus, there is this centurion, and then there is his slave. Now, we know the least about the slave as you look at Scripture. We probably think he's kind of a young man. I kind of picture him as being like a teenager. Luke says that he was sick to the point of death. He was about ready to die. But we never see him. In fact, Jesus never even meets him. And the centurion never even mentions his name. So we don't even know the cause of his problem or how long he's been sick Unless we read Matthew's account of the same story. And in Matthew it says he was paralyzed and he was in great pain. He was somebody who needed healing prayer. Now I kind of picture this slave lying rather motionless on his couch. Breath labored, face kind of bathed in sweat, his pulse raising, and just maybe an occasional moan here or there. Uh, so death is kind of slowly but surely tightening the grip on him every hour. And it's evident to everybody who sees him that only a miracle could now save him. And that is why the centurion came to Jesus. He was looking for a miracle. Now, we know this much about the centurion. He lived in Capernaum. And Capernaum is a small fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as the name implies, as a centurion, he was a captain of 100 soldiers. Now, centurions were chosen because of their leadership ability. They were really the backbone of the Roman army. 
Now, interestingly enough, I, I checked on things like centurion, and centurion is mentioned some 21 times in the New Testament, almost always in a positive light. I found that to be kind of interesting. The most famous being, of course, that centurion who stood at the foot of the cross and watched Jesus die and said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, with that little bit of background, we come to the central fact. The, the centurion had a slave who he highly regarded. He loved this young man. And this was rare when you think about it. In the Roman Empire, slaves had absolutely no rights whatsoever. They could be mistreated. You could actually put them to death if you wanted to. If they kind of didn't do what you wanted, you could just have them killed. One ancient writer wrote, when your animals are old, you throw them out to die. You do the same with your slaves. So this is the very first unusual thing about this story, that a Roman centurion would actually care so much about a slave. Now, the second unusual thing in this is the centurion's request. See, this Gentile soldier actually sends Jewish elders to Jesus. Now, verse 2 of our text says, The centurion heard of Jesus, sent some elders to the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. You know, it's unusual that he did not go himself. It's unusual that he asked Jews to go in his place. It's unusual that these Jews would actually go. And the reason being because relationships between Jews and Romans was never particularly good. The Romans, for example, had no use for Jews in what they called their barbarous religious superstitions. I mean, why all this killing of animals and sacrificing and splashing blood all the way around? What a bunch of barbarians. And of course, the Jews basically hated the Romans. They hated the overlords. They hated the fact that they were uh, occupying army. And here was the centurion who was leading part of the occupying forces. And so in the normal course of things, Romans and Jews had very little, if anything, to do with each other. But this man in this story was different. When the elders speak to Jesus, they stress his good qualities. Verses 4 and 5 says, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation. I think the first time I ever read this story, I thought, what, a Roman just said he loved Israel? Are you kidding me? He loves our nation. What? And he built our synagogue. There you have it. He loves the nation of Israel, and he built them a church. I mean, that's pretty fantastic. Now, if you get a chance to go to the, the Holy Land and be tourists who go there today, if you get to Capernaum, uh, you'll be taken to the remains of a synagogue that goes back to the 2nd century A.D. But underneath those ruins that they're going to show you is another set of stones that a lot of people believe was that original synagogue that that centurion built back in the days of Jesus. So it is no small thing what this centurion was doing. Let me ask you, what would you do if somebody came and walked up to the front of this church and said, I want to build you guys a brand new church? Now, some of you might say, hey, we already got one. Get out of here. I don't know how you'd respond to that. But if somebody came in and said, I want to build you a brand new church. Now, in today's dollars, um, since we are in a new building out of praise and worship, uh, that means by the time you buy the land and you put up maybe just a, a very modest structure, it, it's going to cost you 
you know, millions of dollars. And if you're going to build something really big, it's going to cost millions and millions of dollars. Now, if a rich man actually did that for you guys, you would probably treat him like a hero. I mean, that's why the Jewish leaders said in verse 4, if anyone deserves your help, he does. Now, this rounds out the picture of the centurion. So what do we know about him? He was kind-hearted. He was wealthy. He was generous. He was public-spirited. He was the kind of man that you would probably want as a friend. And the Bible says that the Jews came and they begged Jesus to go because time was short and the servant was dying. So Jesus starts making this trip to the house, to the house of a Gentile, to heal the servant of a, a servant of a Roman soldier. But you need to understand this. Jesus did not have to go. Jesus could have told him, sorry, I got other things to do. Jesus didn't owe anything to this centurion. I mean, worthiness had nothing to do with what Jesus was about to do. Now, there's an old hymn, and probably most of you, you, some of you, I got to think that we sang some old hymns this morning. You probably know this hymn. It, It could have been written about this story. The hymn goes this way. There is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There is a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. There is welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. For the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Maybe you've sung that song before. And that's really the third unusual thing in this story, that Jesus was willing to go to a Gentile's house to heal his servant. But there's a fourth unusual thing in this particular story. Jesus never makes it to the centurion's house. Because the centurion wouldn't let him come. Well, the invitation was, we need to have you go to his house and and heal his servant. Uh, No, the centurion says, no, you don't need to come. Don't need to come at all. And the reason giving really ought to really attract our attention. The centurion says in verses 6 and 7 that he was not worthy to have Jesus in his house. He said, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Now, Jesus, I didn't come to you in person because I'm not worthy. And beyond that, I'm not worthy to have you in my home. Now, think about that for a minute. The Jews who loved him said, this man is what? He's worthy. The centurion said, I am not worthy. See, we we see wrapped up in verses 6, 7, and 8 two remarkable traits of this centurion. The first trait is humility. He had a true estimate of himself. He knew who he was. And then there's also faith. He said, Lord, just say a word. Just say a word, and my servant will be healed. Now, we see the reason for such a faith in verse 8. He says, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. How many of you are associated with the military in some way or another? Serving? Jeff? I know Jeff does. Jeff did. Jeff's my personal Marine. He takes care of me all the time. He volunteers me to preach at churches at the last minute. If you hang around Jeff long enough, you're going to find out, even if he doesn't tell you or you don't see, 
Marine Corps stuff on the back of his pickup truck, you know he's from the military. You know, those who've served and those who know someone who did know that a soldier's way of thinking always shines through his uniform. It always comes out, Jeff. It always shows up. See, what he was saying was, when I give a command, I expect instant obedience. He said, I don't have to be personally present for my soldiers to do what I told them to do. You have unlimited power. Just say the word. The disease will disappear. That's what he was telling Jesus. He was a centurion. He knew what he wanted. You know, this is absolutely amazing faith. And at the same time, it's absolutely astounding that he should have figured this out. I mean, he argues from personal experience because he knew all about being in command. He knew all about giving orders that must be obeyed. He says, Lord, you have the power over disease in the same way I have power over my men. And he argues from what he knows about himself when he, to what he knows about Jesus. If my authority produces instant obedience, how much more will yours produce? Now, you have to kind of step back from the story and ask yourself, how much did this centurion really know about Jesus? Now, I'm sure he knew a little bit of his background, you know, being part of the... Uh, the forces that are occupying this country. I'm sure he'd heard of Jesus. Jesus had been walking around for a few years, followed by a large group of people. He'd probably heard something about his teaching. Uh, he, he certainly had heard that Jesus did some miracles. But did he know that in front of him, coming towards his house, was actually the creator of the universe? See, in John chapter 1, what does it say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and nothing was created without that Word. We know Jesus was back there in Genesis creating this world. Did he know that this guy, Jesus, was that same God? I don't think he did. But he did know that Jesus was more than just an ordinary man. He was more than a carpenter. He was more than just a good teacher. See, he saw Jesus for what he was, and his great faith came from that vision that he had. And because he saw Jesus as absolutely authoritative, he considered Jesus' words as absolutely authoritative as well. He knew that Jesus didn't have to be personally present to actually heal his servant. That brings us to the fifth unusual thing in this story, and it's that Jesus was amazed at this man's faith. He's amazed at it. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Some versions say marveled. Some say he wondered. But he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him said, I got to tell you something, guys. I have not found such great faith even in Israel. I think you could have heard of coin drop or pin drop with these Jews standing around. With Jesus and Jesus, I haven't seen such faith amongst the people who ought to have faith. I mean, that's kind of crazy. Now, the point here is that Jesus was amazed. He was amazed. Now, to my, the best of my knowledge, Jesus is only amazed two times in the Gospels. Right here in this story, he was amazed at this guy's belief. The other time that he was amazed, he was in his hometown of Nazareth. You can read about that in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And they, they didn't want him in town. And he was amazed at their disbelief. 
So amazed at one man's belief, amazed at another person's disbelief. And the point here is this man is a Roman centurion. He's not a Jewish leader, yet he has faith. And I'd say it's kind of amazing, is it not, that faith often pops up where you least expect it. This is faith outside of Israel, and it absolutely amazes Jesus. Now, at this point, we ought to kind of take the story and kind of flip it over for a moment and ask, why was faith so rare in Israel? I mean, you would think these guys have all the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They've got the history. They've got the Torah. They've got the Old Testament. They've got Moses, the prophet. Why was faith so rare? I mean, they had everything you'd want. They had the knowledge of God. They had the history tracing all the way back to Abraham. They had the sacrifices in the temple. They had received the promises of God. They knew about the covenants that God had made with them. They had every advantage that the centurion did not, yet he had faith, and they didn't. When I read this story, I go, why on earth didn't the Jews of all people have faith? What happened well, part of it was a focus on certain signs that they expected and didn't see. I mean, what were they looking for when the Messiah finally came? There were some people who thought he would ride into town on the big white horse with a sword with an army, and he would just slaughter everybody, and he would just be their, their ruler. He was like Rambo on steroids. That's who he was. There were other people who thought he'd come back as kind of a holy man, full of knowledge, and, and he would just kind of blow everybody away with his knowledge. And so they had all of these different pictures of who he was, but their, their abundance of knowledge actually made them overcautious when it actually came to the Son of Man. I mean, the attitude was, don't get carried away with this new guy. He might be a complete fake. And so the story ends at verse 10 with the sixth and final, final unusual thing, and that's that Jesus actually heals the centurion slave by doing nothing, without a word. Doesn't go to the house, doesn't say a thing. He did something that went beyond what the centurion even suggested. Didn't touch the servant. Didn't offer a public prayer. Didn't have altar time and ask people to come forward and let's pray before I go into the house. In other words, he did not do anything outwardly. He just healed the centurion slave. Period. It was a pure, grade A, 100% miracle. The question is, how did he do it? How did he do it? Here's my answer. I don't know. <laughs> I've got the foggiest of how he did it. But I know why he did it. There's a big difference between how and why. I, know, I, I have no idea how he did it. Whether he... Did a Vulcan mind meld of some sort or sent rays off? I, I have no idea. But here's why he did it. He did it to demonstrate beyond all question that he really is the Son of God with all authority given to him over sickness and disease and death. That's why he did it. I want to wrap up by focusing on some key points that show us why Jesus was so amazed at this man's faith. And we should ask ourselves, what does it take to amaze Jesus? I wonder how you'd answer that question. What, does it, what would it take to amaze Jesus? Well, I think just this. It's faith. It's audacious faith. It's 
unexpected faith. It's unashamed faith. I think that might be something that would impress Jesus. And between you and me, I'm glad that that's the answer. Because if it took money or education or good looks or position or power or connections, a lot of us would be disqualified. In fact, all of us. And if it took looking super religious, a lot of us wouldn't make it. See, it is, if it is faith that impresses the Lord, then we need to know how this faith actually works. Now, I think there are a couple of takeaways that I want to share with you this morning. Two kind of vital facts. Here's vital fact number one. Faith works when we come to God with a sense of our own unworthiness. We walk in these doors and to come into the presence of the Lord, we are unworthy to be in his presence. See, as long as we think we deserve a hearing from the Lord, our prayers go unanswered because God is not impressed by the things that impress us. God does not play by our rules. Now, I've been in enough churches and enough places in my life over the years that many times we talk as if we have been saved by faith but we act as if we have been saved by good works. See, down in our hearts, sometimes we we believe that if I was just a better person, God would actually answer my prayers. So we, we try and try and we keep on trying. We work hard. We go to church. We obey the rules. We act nice. We're, we're good. We hope that somehow that will make a difference to God. But then when we get into a crisis, when problems hit, And suddenly what happens, we begin praying like honest-to-goodness Christ followers. See, when life crashes in all around us, when we're backed into a corner, we clearly see secretly what we've known all along, that our good deeds are nothing but a bunch of filthy rags in his sight. See, even in our best moments, and I'm going to own this myself, in my best moments, my best moments are colored with self-interest, with pride, with ego, with mixed motives. But I can tell you that when our loved ones are in trouble, like Pastor Wendell, for example, then we realize that it's not how many chapters we read in the Bible that day that are going to make him better, or whether we've had a, we had a quiet time. What's going, to make a better, what's, what's going to make a difference is God and God alone, and that's who we go to in prayer. That's why I think every once in a while it's good for us to get backed into a corner. Now, a friend of mine once told me desperate, situa- desperate situations make us Christians all over again. I'll say that again. Desperate situations makes us Christian all over again. See, we suddenly stop talking about how wonderful we are and we just shout out, Lord, have mercy. I mean, there there is no prayer more basic than that. Lord, have mercy. See, the first step in salvation, the one that really matters and can never be skipped, is understanding you desperately need saving. And there's nothing you can do to save yourself. And as long as we think somehow that we have a claim on God, we either will not come to Jesus, or if we do, we'll always secretly think that we were not really all that bad in the first place, and so God kind of had to let us in. See, it's good for us to be to be reminded from time to time to, to be completely humbled before the Lord because then we come 
as beggars. As beggars before him, our pride stripped away, arrogance gone, knowing that if it were not for, for the grace of God, we could not even come at all. But see, when we come before the Lord crying out for mercy, that's when we discover this all-encompassing power of Jesus. Now, there's a vital fact, number two, and it's this, that faith works when our confidence in the Lord is so strong that we are willing to risk embarrassment and failure. That, I think, is why the Pharisees, who had plenty of religion, never had much faith. That was too dangerous for them. It was way too risky. They had to play it safe. They could not afford to be embarrassed. They had an image that they had to uphold. But that is why the centurion got his answer. He didn't know much. But what he did know, he was willing to take a chance on. I mean, just think for a moment the risk that this centurion took. What if Jesus wouldn't come to his house? I mean, what if he tried to cure his servant and he couldn't do it? What if Jesus rebuked him and said, I'm not coming to your house, you're a stinking Roman. Get out of here. Or what if, or what if, or what if? See, you know, it's a wonderful thing to be in so deep that you need a miracle that you get out because that's when you're most likely to receive one. I think this guy kind of understood that. I mean, someone once said that faith is belief plus unbelief and acting on the belief part. I think all of us got a little bit of unbelief in our lives sometimes, but it's belief that counts. And sadly, too many of us never get around to acting on the belief part. See, you can know a lot and believe a little. That would put you in the group with the Pharisees. Or you could know a little and believe a lot, and that would be a centurion. But I would suggest to you it's better to believe a lot based on the little knowledge that you know a lot and believe almost nothing. A few days ago, somebody sent me an interesting text. Here's a question. I don't know what, you know, some guys play stump the pastor all the time. I always think it's called stump the chump. They're going to slip something by you. Here's the question they asked. Do my prayers bore God? I'm glad they didn't say, do your prayers bore God? (laughs) But I think that's what he was actually asking. I mean, think about that. Do my prayers bore God? That's an interesting question. Now, immediately, the mind wants to argue with that question. I mean, that's what I want to do. How can God ever be bored with my prayers? Come on. (laughs) I love him. But I don't think that's the question, what that question is actually asking. I think the question challenges us to ask, what in my life can only be explained by the power of God? Or what am I asking for that only God can answer? Now, sometimes if you're anything like me, your prayers are kind of tame and plain vanilla. And I'm going to be, I'm going to confess here, and that's because I don't want to put God on the spot by asking him for something outrageously huge, like actually healing for someone who's desperately ill and dying. Now, that was not a boring request, and it received an amazing, immediate, miraculous answer. 
So there's a little bit of warning and encouragement here in this scripture. The warning is to those who have great knowledge, but practically believe very little. But it is great encouragement to those of us who know little about the Bible, maybe, or maybe very little about the Christian faith, and yet we trust God completely based on what we do know. So, friends, we end up here kind of where we began with the observation that to believe, sometimes we actually need to suspend our disbelief. See, as long as we limit God to what we think he can do, we will never see anything great because our faith remains too small. But once we're kind of willing to suspend our belief and renounce our skepticism, then and only then do we become candidates for a miracle. See, the life of faith is inherently a life of risk. The Christian life is not for timid souls who play it safe all the time. John Calvin put it this way, how graciously Christ pours out his grace when he finds the vessel of faith wide open. So the question is, are we open to receive all that God has in store for us? I pray that it is so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are challenged by this story. It's a very unusual story. It shows us how faith works by giving us a glimpse of the unusual faith found in an unusual man who displayed his faith in an unusual way. We pray that we'd be empowered by the Spirit to pray those audacious prayers, those prayers that just seem absolutely unreal, knowing that in you we have power, that you can do anything. Help us not to back away and to kind of think that maybe things can't happen. But may we see miracles in our lives. May we see Satan pushed back. May we see actual growth. May we see actual miracles. We pray it in the precious and the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.